0: chapter twelve part one of history of the civil war eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five by james ford rhodes this librivox recording is in the public domain twelve part one conditions in the southern confederacy were novel in that the community was cut off by the blockade from any extensive intercourse with the outer world as the north was the stronger naval power the blockade was clearly obvious and was proclaimed by the president one week after the firing on Sumter although at first not thorough it gradually increased in efficiency and proved one of the important agencies in deciding the war but lincoln and grant saw plainly that peace could not be had until the southern armies had been fought to a finish of destruction or surrender to this end the patient work of the navy in blockading the southern ports was a grateful and necessary aid to grant and sherman in their decisive operations but the blockade of itself might have been maintained even unto the crack of doom if lee's and johnston's armies remained intact living in a fertile country cultivated by a mass of negro non-combatants clothed from an excess supply of cotton and a limited supply of wool the relation between our army and navy during the civil war was the same as between the british army and navy in nineteen fourteen when the english fleet had effectually blockaded the german ports and kept the german fleet in a safe harbor said the london times the navy is our shield the army our sword the blockade was a source of acute discomfort to the southern people cutting them off from most luxuries and many necessaries salt coffee tea soap candles matches glue advanced enormously in price and were extremely scarce the blockade taught lessons of economy causing highly bred young women of charleston to dress in homespun and richmond gentlemen to wear last year's clothes Brooms, chairs, baskets, brushes, pails, tubs, kegs, slate pencils, and knitting needles were scarce. Ink began to be made in the home by a crude process. In the news columns of the Charleston Courier, it was announced that a man in Caswell County, North Carolina, was manufacturing writing ink, which he would furnish in any quantity to those who would provide their own bottles. A Richmond apothecary advertised that he could not fill prescriptions unless persons requiring medicines should bring their own files but many common medicines were hard to get the medical purveyor at richmond appealed to the ladies of virginia to cultivate the poppy so that opium might be had for the sick and wounded of the army various things were popularly suggested to take the place of quinine and other medicines the surgeon-general sent out officially a formula for a compound tincture of dried dogwood poplar and willow bark and whiskey to be issued as a tonic and febrifuge and substitute as far as practicable for quinine quinine and morphia were articles greatly desired in the trade with the north all possible means were used to obtain these and other drugs and a large amount of smuggling was at one time carried on from cincinnati by men and women devoted to the confederate cause in october eighteen sixty two when general sherman was in command at memphis an imposing funeral headed by a handsome city hearse with pall and plumes was allowed by the guards to pass through the union lines the coffin which was borne by the hearse contained a lot of well-selected medicines for the confederate army a large doll filled with quinine was brought through the lines in a trunk from new orleans when it was scrutinized the owner declared with tears in her eyes that the doll was for a poor crippled girl this ruse was likewise successful in passing it through without the discovery of its precious burden no deprivation was felt so keenly as the lack of tea and coffee "'Tea is beyond the reach of all, save the most opulent,' said the Charleston Courier in April 1862. "'I have not tasted coffee or tea for more than a year,' is an entry of Jones on February 4, 1864. Rich people even abstained from the use of tea in order that the small supply should be saved for those who were ill. The hospitals procured coffee for a while, but on December 2, 1863, the Surgeon General ordered its discontinuance as an article of diet for the sick in consequence of the very limited supply he added it is essential that it be used solely for its medicinal effect as a stimulant people resorted to all kinds of substitutes parched rye wheat corn sweet potatoes chestnuts peanuts chicory and cottonseed took the place of the arabian berry but all agreed that there was nothing coffee but coffee for tea a decoction of dried currant blackberry and sage leaves of sassafras root or blossoms was drunk and some tried to make themselves believe that the substitute was as good as china tea fremantle during his travels through the south tasted no tea from april sixth to june seventeenth eighteen sixty three when some uncommonly good was offered him at president davis's house in eighteen sixty two may be noted a scarcity of salt and anxiety as to a future supply especially for the army as salt meat was a large part of the army ration the governor of mississippi wrote to davis that the destitution of salt is alarming and the governor of alabama in a letter to the secretary of war said the salt famine in our land is most lamentable the earthen floors of smokehouses saturated by the dripping of bacon were dug up and boiled that no salty material be left unused sea water was to a large extent utilized to provide for the deficiency but a more valuable source of supply was the saline springs of southwestern virginia the Commonwealth of Virginia embarked on the manufacture of salt and made regulations for its distribution to the public. Other states followed her example so that the salt famine was to some extent mitigated. Another serious hardship arose from the scarcity of paper. Many of the newspapers were gradually reduced in size and were finally printed on half sheets. Sometimes one sheet would be brown, another wallpaper. Even the white paper was frequently coarse and this together with the inferior type made the news sheet itself a daily record of the waning material fortunes of the confederacy the richmond examiner said that the editorials of the journals were written on brown paper waste paper backs of old letters and rejected essays unpaid bills bits of foolscap torn from the copy books of youth and the ledgers of the business men an alabama editor used a shingle when one editorial was set up he would wipe it out and write another another editor employed in a similar way his schoolboy slate an advertisement in the charleston courier ran that no more orders for miller's almanac for eighteen sixty three could be filled unless forty or fifty reams of printing paper could be purchased mrs maguire could not get a blank book in which to continue her diary and was obliged to use wrapping paper for the vivid account of her daily experiences mrs putnam states that their family and friendly letters were written on paper which they would hardly have used for wrapping paper before the war envelopes which had been received were frequently turned inside out and used for the reply curry relates that the tax receipts given for the produce of his farm in alabama were written on brown paper and had a dingy archaic appearance Citizens as a boon to the press and the public nay the government itself were urged to send their accumulated rags to the paper manufacturers there was danger of an iron famine and certain other metals were in short supply information came to the charleston arsenal that many patriotic citizens were willing to contribute their lead-window weights to the government for war purposes and the captain of the corps of artillery in charge offered to replace them with iron the editor of the charleston courier offered the lead-water pipe in his residence as a free gift to my beloved and imperilled country other similar offers were made and church bells were proffered that their metal might be melted and cast into cannon contemporary writings are full of complaints of lack of bread and meat hunger wrote professor gildersleeve was the dominant note of life in the confederacy while this was true of virginia which largely had lee's army to feed and suffered from the devastation of the northern armies the rest of the confederacy was on the whole pretty well supplied with food although there was suffering from the short crop of cereals of eighteen sixty two in many states owing to a severe drought but if the railroads had been in shape to do their proper work of distribution all parts of the confederacy would have been well supplied during this year of eighteen sixty two texas had a large crop of grain and was able to supply contiguous parts of the confederacy with grain beef and mutton but next year such commerce would have been stopped by grant's capture of vicksburg and possession of the mississippi river while virginia complained of scarcity sherman in january eighteen sixty three reported abundant supplies in mississippi we found cattle and fat ones feeding quietly he wrote the country everywhere abounds with corn grant's cutting loose from his base in may eighteen sixty three and living upon the country is a well-known episode and during the autumn of eighteen sixty four sherman's army in georgia revelled in plenty while lee's soldiers almost starved in virginia the whole difficulty was one of transportation in eighteen sixty one the railroads began to deteriorate and as the years went on their condition got worse and worse the wear and tear of a railroad is enormous, and can be counteracted only by constant repair and renewal, which in this case was impossible. In time of peace, every article of railroad equipment had been purchased at the north. While freight cars were constructed at the south, every bolt and rod, every wheel and axle, every nail, spike and screw, every sheet of tin, every ounce of solder, every gallon of oil and every pound of paint came from the northern workshops and factories, as did likewise for the most part passenger cars and locomotives if these last were sometimes made at the south this concession to local patriotism or convenience cost much in money at the same time with decay came increased business one element in which was the transportation of food to great distances for the army and cities in eighteen sixty two a good crop of indian corn in southern georgia and florida and the poor one elsewhere east of louisiana required equalization which the railroads were called upon to effect they hauled a considerable amount of provisions and other freight but in eighteen sixty two and the succeeding years were utterly unable to satisfy the demands of the government and the public in april eighteen sixty three there were 6,300 miles of railroad in the Confederacy, exclusive of those in the hands of the enemy, which was enough considering that they were conveniently located to handle the government traffic and serve the public to some extent if they could be used to the full. But owing to the deterioration of the permanent way and lack of equipment, few trains were run, and as compared with Northern practice at the same period, the train load was light. From everywhere came complaints. Cities wanted food which the railroads could not bring in january eighteen sixty four it was said that indian corn was selling at one and two dollars a bushel in southwestern georgia and at twelve or fifteen dollars in virginia another richmond authority at the close of that year was sure that every one would have enough to eat if food could be properly distributed the possession of the railroads by the northern armies as they advanced interfered with proper transportation this is exemplified by a comparison of the railroad guides in 1863 and 1864 under the head of certain railroads instead of the timetable one may read the yankees have possession of a portion of this road at present or the entire road is in the hands of the yankees these indications were more numerous in 1864 than in 1863 government work continually encroached on the ordinary business of the railroads yet this was by no means well done the public suffered as well as the army mails were irregular and long delayed newspapers failed to be received or when they came to hand were many days old the traveler on the railroad encountered difficulties and dangers of which the two railroad guides published at the south gave no inkling consulting these he might have expected in eighteen sixty three to make his journey at the rate of from fourteen to eighteen miles per hour including stops and in eighteen sixty four at a rate not greatly less but the indications of the guides were deceptive. The traveler was lucky if his train made a continued progress of from five to eight miles per hour. Trains were always late and connections were missed. Frequent accidents, many of which were fatal, happened because of the unstable condition of the permanent way and equipment. General Joseph E. Johnston, on his way to Richmond, Chattanooga, in November 1862, to take command of the new department assigned to him, was delayed by several railroad accidents. Fremantle gave a good-humored account of his experiences in June 1863 between Charleston and Richmond. At Florence he was detained by the breakdown of another train, and when his own was at last ready he fought his way into some desperately crowded cars. After being transferred by boat at Wilmington, he had a hot and an oppressive all-day's ride in a dreadfully crowded train. We changed cars at Weldon, he wrote, where I had a terrific fight for a seat, but I succeeded for experience had made me very quick at this sort of business. Travelling as continuously as possible, he was forty-one hours from Charleston to Richmond, a journey which is now made in ten. Another Englishman mentions the conventional joke that a journey from Wilmington to Richmond was almost as dangerous as an engagement with the enemy. According to the official estimate of the capacity and the schedules, one or two passenger trains ran daily each way on the railroads, but at times the government compelled the suspension of all other service in favor of the transportation of provisions for the army and of officers and soldiers returning to their commands in april eighteen sixty four a certain minister was unable to keep his engagement to preach a sermon at the opening session of the presbyterian anniversary at augusta as by reason of the military necessity ordinary travel on all railroads between that city and richmond had been prohibited vice-president Stevens gave an interesting relation of his attempted journey in may eighteen sixty four from his georgia home to the capital of the confederacy when he travelled northward from charlotte in a passenger car attached to a train loaded with bacon for the army on one dark and rainy night he ascertained that there was a train five minutes behind his and that the only precaution taken against a rear-end collision was the placing of a lamp on the rear platform of his car the locomotive steamed slowly up the grades but dashed furiously downhill while going up a steep grade the cars broke loose from the locomotive and ran down the grade at increasing speed for two miles until having reached the foot of one hill they began to ascend the other and finally came to a stop just in time to avoid colliding with the train behind after a while the locomotive came back and Stevens proceeded on his journey stopped at danville by a fatal accident ahead of him and learning that the railroad had been cut by the enemy between danville and richmond he believed that it would be almost impossible to reach the capital and therefore decided to return home suffering unaccountable delays he traveled a part of the way on a train bearing a large number of yankee prisoners and wounded confederates from the battles of the wilderness he had one seat reserved for him in the single passenger car the rest of the train was made up of box-cars which the yankees filled inside and out they being given the preference in dispatch to the confederates who in their wrath swore that the yankees ought to be killed but instead of that they were cared more for than the men who had been wounded in defending their country in september eighteen sixty four thomas dabney wrote from macon that in middle georgia the railroads were in the hands of the government and all private travel was excluded except on freight trains as a special favor governor brown's wife was given passage in an express car a closed box dabney himself desiring to take his family servants and furniture from macon to jackson mississippi chartered two box-cars for several thousand dollars and they traveled thither on freight trains stopping at night and not infrequently a whole day consuming two weeks on a journey which with close connections could now be made in less than twenty hours for this defective transportation from which the government and public suffered all sorts of remedies were suggested by government officials and railroad presidents and superintendents but most of them involved a development of manufacturing industries or an extension of commerce which was impossible lack of iron was the serious difficulty if an adequate supply of this metal had been available the railroads could have been kept in repair how scarce it was is implied in the request that the government impress the rails of an unprofitable railroad and give them to another company for the extension of its line indeed such an expedient was afterwards resorted to army officers likewise frequently impressed cars and locomotives and ordered the rolling stock from one road to another without providing for its return but on the other hand the government made appropriations of money for the completion of certain lines of railroads a study of conditions in the south cannot fail to emphasize the dependence of modern civilization on iron it will also cause surprise that practically nothing had been done to utilize the rich deposits of iron ore and the abundance of coking coil in many of the southern states everywhere is one struck with a painful scarcity of iron in a paper read before a railroad conference in richmond it was suggested that the government make a public appeal for all the cast and wrought iron scrap on the farms in the yards and houses of citizens of the confederacy and that it established a system for the collection from the country cities towns and villages of broken or worn-out ploughs plough points hoes, spades axes broken stoves household and kitchen utensils with promise of adequate compensation the rails of the street railroad in richmond were taken up to be made into armor for a gunboat the planters of alabama in those very regions where iron ore in abundance existed underground could not get iron enough to make and repair their agricultural implements the charleston courier complained that a sword could not be made in the confederacy a remark of a union officer after the capture of vicksburg offended the confederate who reports it yet it contains a pertinent criticism of a one-sided material development the officer Noting on the iron stairway of the Vicksburg Courthouse, the name of a Cincinnati manufacturer moulded on it, exclaimed, "Confound the impudence of the people who thought they could whip the United States when they couldn't even make their own staircases. The war demand stimulated the manufacture of iron in the confederacy but a comparison of the iron industry at the south with that at the north under the same stimulus shows rude and early methods contrasted with a practice which though wasteful and untechnical beside the european did nevertheless meet the exigency of the moment and become the parent of the preeminently scientific and practical processes of the present day the iron blast furnaces at the south were small and of antiquated construction the fuel used was charcoal no attempt having been made apparently to smelt the ores with coke or raw coal in the oldest iron region virginia the constant cutting of timber for a series of years had made it alarmingly scarce ore existed in pockets which were soon worked out and many furnaces had but a precarious supply of it which was hauled to them for miles in wagons in one case as far as ten miles if ore was plenty fuel was likely to be scarce or else the converse was the case even if both were at hand in sufficient quantity to make ten tons daily which was considered a large product it was impossible to feed the hands necessarily employed who must depend on the immediate neighborhood for supplies of bread and meat since transportation of these from a distance was out of the question in alabama the industry made a better showing it was a new region fuel and ore were abundant and food could be had of the large and improved furnaces one owned by the government made an average of thirteen tons daily for a month georgia and tennessee were the other iron manufacturing states and in all of them the work was obstructed by the steady progress of the union armies in the occupation of southern territory within the year ending october first eighteen sixty four ten iron furnaces in virginia all but three in tennessee all in georgia and four in alabama had been burned by the enemy or abandoned because of his inroads yet in a report of november twentieth eighteen sixty four it was stated that eighteen furnaces were in blast in virginia although their work was very irregular in return for certain privileges and assistance the government took one-half of the production of iron at a little above cost and had for the remaining half the preference over other purchasers the amount of iron reported as received by the nitre and mining bureau is surprisingly small and the figures cannot adequately measure the production which nevertheless by a liberal estimate must have been insignificant as compared with that of the north despite the unfavorable conditions under which they labored the confederates did not lack munitions of war through home manufacture and imports by blockade runners they always had a sufficient supply of small arms and ordnance the small arms came chiefly from abroad the field siege and seacoast artillery were produced mainly in the arsenals and workshops of the confederacy their rifles were equal in efficiency to those used by the union soldiers and breech-loading carbines were made in Richmond for the cavalry during the last two years of the war the northern artillery may have been superior to the southern in eighteen sixty one and eighteen sixty two the Confederates captured many arms from their enemy, but in 1863 the conditions were reversed and they lost at Gettysburg, Vicksburg and Port Hudson, 75,000 stand of small arms, and in addition a considerable amount of ordnance. England and France desired the cotton and tobacco which glutted the southern markets, whilst the South needed the arms, munitions of war and iron which England could furnish in abundance. This desirable exchange was prevented by the blockade hence it became necessary to resort to blockade running an enterprise which attracted capital by reason of its enormous profits when successful this trade in eighteen sixty one was of an improvised character and was carried on by southern coasting steamers whose regular business was gone and by small craft which though slow had little difficulty at first in evading the blockade and reaching some nearby neutral port vessels laden with arms munitions of war and merchandise cleared from great britain for some port in the west indies but their true destination was the southern confederacy and when their voyage was successful they brought back cargoes of the southern staples as adventurous business men in england and in the confederacy became accustomed to the state of war and had constantly before their eyes the high price and scarcity of cotton in england and the low price and plenty in the confederacy with certain necessaries of war and articles of comfort in the reverse order they discerned in these conditions a rare opportunity for profitable trade meanwhile the blockade was becoming steadily more stringent and the business of evading it grew from the haphazard methods of its earlier days into a regular system arms munitions of war blankets army cloth shoes tea soap letter paper and envelopes fine fabrics of cotton linen wool and silk cases and barrels of medicines, liquors, wines, and other merchandise were shipped from England to Bermuda, Nassau, or Havana, and there transferred to blockade runners which made their way to Wilmington, Charleston, Savannah, Mobile, or Galveston. If these ports were soon reached, a quick and lucrative market was found for the cargo, and a return load of cotton or occasionally tobacco or turpentine was brought to Nassau, Bermuda, or Havana, and there transshipped to the vessel which carried them to England. The blockade-runners were now specially constructed for their trade, and a typical one of 1863-1864 was a low, long, narrow, swift, side-wheel steamer with light draft and a capacity of four to six hundred tons. The hull was painted a dull gray or lead color, which rendered the vessel invisible, unless at short range even in daylight. In order to avoid smoke, Pennsylvania anthracite was used when it could be had, otherwise Welsh semi-bitumous coal nassau was the most important neutral and charleston and wilmington the most important confederate ports in this trade the blockade runner left nassau at an hour that would bring her off charleston or wilmington at night and the running of the blockade was rarely attempted unless there was no moon when near the blockading squadron all lights were put out the engine-room hatchways and binnacle were covered with tarpaulin and the steamer made her way forward in utter darkness no noise was permitted necessary orders and reports of soundings were given in muffled voices steam was blown off under water often the blockade runners escaped without being seen sometimes they were chased but escaped sometimes the pursuit was so hard that they ran ashore or were captured it was a keenly contested game between these and the blockaders only to be played by those loving the sea THE TALES OF THE BLOCKADE RUNNERS ARE HIGHLY INTERESTING, FULL AS THEY ARE OF THE SPICE OF ADVENTURE. BATTLING WITH THE SEA IN OVERLOADED CRAFT, SPECIALLY CONSTRUCTED TO AVOID OTHER DANGER. FEELING THEIR WAY THROUGH THE BLOCKADING SQUADRON. NOW PAINFULLY MAKING THEIR PORT WITHOUT REGULARLY SET LIGHTS. NOW DETECTED, PURSUED AND RESORTING TO ALL MANNER OF TRICKS TO ELUDE THE PURSUERS. LOVING FOG, DARKNESS AND MYSTERY. THEY WERE COOL, FEARLESS, NERVY MEN AND THEIR STORIES ARE HIGHLY ROMANTIC less thrilling the tale of the blockader the blockade runner chose his own time and had the excitement of the attempt but the blockader must be ever vigilant throughout long periods of inaction after days and nights of anxious watching the emergency lasting brief minutes might come when least expected the great extent of coast much of it having a double line with numerous inlets and the necessity for the blockading ships to ride out the gales at anchor close to a hostile shore made of this blockade an operation that for difficulty was probably without precedent it was certainly the first time that the evaders of a blockade had the powerful help of steam the eager desire to obtain cotton was another factor operating to the advantage of the blockade runners as was likewise the proximity of friendly neutral ports the effective work of the united states navy is measured by the number of captures and by the increasing difficulty of evading the blockade gradually port after port was practically closed until none were left but charleston and wilmington wilmington owing to the peculiar configuration and character of the coast and the large island at the entrance of cape fear river was the most difficult port of all to blockade and in eighteen sixty three and eighteen sixty four its trade with nassau and bermuda was large on june sixteenth eighteen sixty three fremantle passing through wilmington counted eight large steamers all handsome leaden-colored vessels which ply their trade with the greatest regularity blockade running to and from port continued until the taking of fort fisher in january eighteen sixty five but the risk of capture during the last six months of activity was great charleston remained open until sherman's northward march compelled its evacuation but for a long while before this only the best constructed steamers could run the blockade and the success even of these was rare the work of the united states navy in the blockade was an affair of long patience unrelieved by the prospect of brilliant exploits lacking the stimulus of open battle it required discipline and character only the more but the reward to the country was great for the blockade played an important part in the final outcome of the war End of chapter 12, part 1